Welcome back to the Furs and Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer. This is a podcast where we discuss the North American fur trade between the years of 1500 to 1840. Today we're going to look at one of the indigenous nations that was instrumental in the success of the fur trade, the Crow Nation. I will beg your forgiveness now for any Crow names, words, or places that I completely hork up. It's not the easiest language to maneuver through. So let us begin at the beginning. At the beginning of the world, there was nothing but water. It was dark in the world, and no one saw the water of the world. Then the old man coyote of the crow people came into the world, and he looked all around and said, Is there nothing in this world but water? Off in the distance, old man saw there were two little ducks swimming about. These ducks had red eyes. Old man coyote called to them. They came swimming, paddling in the world of water. Old man said to them, Is there nothing in this world but water? The elder duck answered, Hmm, we've never seen anything in this world but water, but we think there may be something down under the water. We feel it in our hearts. Dive down, younger duck, said old man, and the younger of the little ducks dove deep into the water, looking for the bottom. He was gone a long time, and old man said, Oh, I'm afraid Younger Duck has drowned. No, said Elder Duck. We are able to hold our breath for a long time. He will come back up. At about that time, Younger Duck came up with something in his bill. It was a root. If there is a root, said Old Man, then there must be earth as well. Dive down, Elder Duck, and see if you can find some earth. The Elder Duck dove deep and was gone for a very long time. When he came up, he had a ball of mud in his bill. Ah, said Old Man Coyote, this is what I've been looking for. He took the root and he put it into the ball of wet earth and he blew on it three times. Once he blew, twice he blew, and again he blew on the ball of earth. The ball began to grow and fill the world and push the water aside. It grew until there was a great land with many plants and animals living on it. The ducks who live in water, on land and in the sky, brought up the earth, and Old Man Coyote made the world for the crow people. This is just one of the creation legends told to crow children when they're being taught of their origins. And I strongly encourage you to spend a little time reading some of the other legends online. It's a wonderful journey. So the Crow people originally lived in the roughly Ohio Valley with their cousins, the Hidatsa. During this time, white settlers were putting pressure on the natives, forcing them westward. Those natives pressured the next tribe over, forcing them to relocate, and so on and so on. Until, just like dominoes knocking down the next, everyone was soon suffering. Under pressure from tribes like the Ojibwa, the Salto, and the Cree, who had incidentally all been trading with these white traders for shiny new guns, the crows then began migrating west, settling in the area encompassing present-day Montana, Wyoming, and South Dakota. These people call themselves the Apsaluke, meaning children of the large-beaked bird. This name was actually given to them by their Hidatsa relatives, 
but the French interpreters of the day mistranslated it to mean people of the crow. So when we hear the word crow today, we think of that medium-sized black bird with bright shining eyes and the ability to count and solve puzzles. This isn't necessarily the meaning of the word back then. The term back then likely referred to the mystical thunderbird. So the Apsaluke migrated westward, and eventually they divided into three groups, with each group finding their new home in separate parts of this Montana, Wyoming, South Dakota territory. The Ash-Alaho, or Mountain Crow people, chose the lands between the Black Hills of South Dakota and the Apsaroka Mountains, straddling the boundary between present-day Wyoming and Montana. The Ashishpite, or the River Crow people, range from the Yellowstone River north to the Milk River. And the third group were known as the Kicked in the Bellies Crow, or the Elepito, and they lived from the Bighorn Mountains to the Wind River Range in the north and central Wyoming. The oral history of the Crow Nation tells of a fourth group called the Beaver Dries Its Fur people, who likely merged into the Kiowa tribe during the 17th century. All of these tribes were refugees, trying to adapt to their new environment. This was also the case when the Hidatsas, remember those cousins to the Crow who lived over in Ohio, they were now forced westward as well, and eventually they were forced out of their home in North Dakota. In 1837, they fled west to avoid the white folk and the dreaded wave of smallpox coming with them, and they found their new home among the River Crow Band. Remember, it was in this very area that the white fur trappers were working their lines, and most of the Crow Nation became fast friends with many of them. It's often believed that it was the Crow Nation that gave our mountain man his reverent appreciation for the mountains. Because, to the Apsoluke, these mountains were sacred. This is where the first maker, we call him the creator, traveled as he watched his creations living below him. It's also where, deep within the earth of the prior mountains, there lived a race of little people. The belief in little people living in the earth or wilderness is common amongst many tribes, and each tribe has a unique name for them. In fact, all around the world, many people believe there are races of little people living within the wilderness. Think of fairies, think of dwarves. But for the crow, these ferocious little spirit dwarves of folklore, they're known as the Nirumbi. They didn't like associating with humans, though they were occasionally helpful to the crow people. And the Apsaluke had a great respect for these beings. To upset one was to invite disaster upon your family. The Nirumbi were said to be about knee-high, with little round bellies, incredibly strong short arms and legs, and stubby little necks. Their sharp canine fangs could tear the heart out of their enemies in one bite, and they were often given offerings to protect the Apsaluke. So to keep the Nirumbi peaceful, offerings of tobacco, food, beads, cloth, and medicine were left at a place known as the Medicine Rocks. And one was always very careful not to play tricks on or tease the little people, lest they incur the dwarf's wrath and have his children stolen, 
or his entire family destroyed. Most times, the crow just avoided going into the mountains to keep from upsetting the little people. But occasionally, a lone crow would travel to the medicine rocks to fast for several days and to seek spiritual insight, which the little people would gladly offer up to the vision seeker by manifesting itself into a lone animal. The little people were integral to the sacred sun dance, a ritual practiced by the Apsaluke. In fact, the Nirambi were the judges of the participants, and they would reward the dancer's sincerity with visions and spiritual insight. These little people were part of the sacred mountains and with the creatures who dwelled in them, including the Apsaluke. In fact, one of the greatest chiefs of the Crow Nation has ever seen is a man named Plentikus, spelled C-O-U-P-S, Plentikus. He had more than one encounter with the little people, each encounter giving him insight needed to lead his people onto greatness. But we'll learn a lot more about him in a bit. So these people are living in this area covering Montana, Wyoming, in the western part of South Dakota. And they were friendly with most of their neighbors, including the Flatheads, the Nez Perce, the Kootenai, the Shoshone, the Kiowa, the Plains Apache. But they were mortal enemies with the Sioux, the Blackfoot, and the Cheyenne. As for the U.S. government, that was a different story. Generally, the Crow got along well with the Whites. In fact, as early as 1807, Fort Lisa was the first trading post built within the territory of the Crow Nation. And other than the Lewis and Clark expedition being relieved of some horses on the Yellowstone River, they generally didn't cause the Whites any grief. In 1825, Chief of the Mountain Crow, a man by the name of Longhair, and 15 other Crow members signed a treaty of friendship with the U.S. government. In this treaty, the Crow Nation recognized the supremacy of the United States, although it's highly unlikely they fully understood what that means. I will link this document from the Tribal Treaties database for you on the website, because it's a wonderful read. This was the first document of peace signed between the Crow and the U.S. government. But not all of the Crow leadership was happy about this. In fact, a chief named Arapaoish of the River Crow Band was so disgusted by this, he left in a huff. And as he stormed out, he prayed for Thunderbird to send a downpour onto the Whites, which apparently worked. Now, the white trading posts were beginning to crop up all over the lands, and the Crow were unhappy about one of them named Fort Mackenzie, which was being erected at the Missouri River in the heart of Blackfeet country. They didn't want their enemies having European trade goods, so they tried to shut it down. Some sources say the siege lasted a month, but in actuality, it was a few days long, and the Crows eventually gave up and went home, just a few days before a band of Blackfeet arrived, actually. This was really the only conflict between the crows and whites. Now, being already semi-nomadic, the tribe had adapted to the nomadic lifestyle of the Plains Indian quite easily, becoming hunters and gatherers. Following the buffalo herds, they used dogs and the tribe to carry their camps from one place to the next. Now, once they acquired horses from the neighboring Apache in the early 1700s, their lives would become infinitely easier. They could now hunt buffalo more effectively, move camp more easily, and now had an advantage when raiding or fleeing. 
They quickly proved themselves to be skilled horse breeders, building up huge herds, which brought them great honor and esteem. However, with success comes great peril. This wealth made them the targets of theft from other tribes who were lacking in horses, including various tribes of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Grove Vent, the Pawnee, and the Ute. But the Crow tribe rightfully became one of the most successful tribes in the northern Great Plains, and much of it was because of their horsemanship. Even today, Crow artists create beautiful regalia to honor their horses. They can be seen today in fairs and rodeos and other events where they're proudly displaying this heritage. In fact, ever since the early 1900s, every August, they host a fair on their tribal lands in Montana, inviting more than 50,000 people from around the world. These festivities open with a grand parade where riders and horses alike are dressed in the most beautiful and elaborate regalia, honoring their culture and their history. Their pride in their land is reflected throughout history as well. According to Washington Irving's account, in an 1830 speech given by Crow Chief Elapuash to the clerk Robert Campbell of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company, he says, The Crow country is in exactly the right place. It has snowy mountains, sunny plains, all kinds of climates and good things for every season. When the summer heat scorches the prairies, you can draw up under the mountains where the air is sweet and cool. The grass fresh and the bright streams come tumbling out of the snowbanks. There you can hunt the elk, the deer, and the antelope when their skins are fit for dressing. There you will find plenty of white bears and mountain sheep. In the autumn, when your horses are strong and fat from the mountain pastures, you can go down into the plains and hunt the buffalo or trap beaver in the streams. And when winter comes on, you can take shelter in the woody bottoms along the rivers. There you will find buffalo meat for yourselves and cottonwood bark for your horses. Or you may winter in the Wind River Valley, where there is salt weed in abundance. The Crow Country is in exactly the right place. Everything good is to be found there. There is no country like Crow Country. Besides being so closely connected to the land, Absoluke were deeply connected to the animals that lived upon the land, particularly the bison. While they hunted deer, elk, bear, bighorn sheep, mountain goats for the meat, the main source of food came from the American bison. They would then round out their diet with vegetables like wild turnips, elderberries, and Saskatoon berries. And like most native tribes, they wasted no part of the animals they killed. The bison's hide were turned into teepees stretched over poles harvested from the lodgepole pine. These teepees were painted with beautiful images, each one unique to its owner. And even early journals of this day tell us of these magnificent paintings, citing each one as a work of art in its own right. Besides lodging, the buffalo hides were used to create clothing for the people. Women wore deer or buffalo skin dresses decorated with shells, beads, or teeth. The men wore leggings and a breechcloth, a long shirt, and a waist sash. Something else, though, that the crow were exceptionally known for was their hair. Both men and women usually braided their hair into two long braids, one over each shoulder, which were bound with strips of animal hide or colorful wool. Some of the men would wear their hair cut into a pompadour, which they then painted white with paint. 
But the most remarkable thing is that some of these men and women had hair so long that it dragged on the ground behind them. And they would use product in their hair to make it shiny and silky, much like today. Though it was made out of rendered bear fat, which I can imagine was a bugger to wash out. Men of great importance wore feathers and ornaments, like little stuffed birds in their hair as a symbol of their position. Chiefs wore elaborately beaded bonnets of feathers that trailed down their backs. Women were held in high esteem within the Crow Nation. Some women became great warriors, even rising to the position of chiefs. One in particular, a woman simply known as Woman Chief, gained great renown as a fierce fighter and a war leader, and later went on to serve in peace delegations. Now, Crow Nation women are extremely talented beadwork artists, and they adorned every aspect of their lives, bringing color and symbols into every fiber of their beings. In fact, they were so gifted as crafters back in the era of the rendezvous that they developed their own method of stitchwork for beads, which we today call the overlay or the crow stitch. And for all of you beading people, their work is very geometric in theme, with triangles, diamonds, and hourglass symbols. They favored blues and pinks, but they used all of the other colors as well, and they outlined their shapes with white beads to make it pop, each color representing something in their natural world. Their beadwork is simply stunning. And like everything in indigenous lives, there was meaning in everything. Colors represented something. Shapes represented something. Everything was created from their heart. And every creation was sacred. So in Crow religion, there is one creator, though he's often referred to by different names. And I'll spare you my attempt at pronouncing the Crow names. It's not going to happen. The white translations are names like one who has made everything, first maker, maker of all things. And of course, Old Man Coyote, who we met earlier. And all of these names refer to one omnipotent being who created the universe. But the universe is divided into three worlds. The first is the smallest, and it's the physical realm that contains us humans, the plants, and the animals. The second is a spirit world, where ancestors watch over the first world. It's where our relatives go when they die. The third world is the place where only the creator, only he alone resides. Now the sacred power of the creator is a word I won't even subject you to listening to me trying to pronounce. The physical manifestation of that power is called medicine in English. This medicine can only be granted to the crow through the spirit world. Those spirits act as a mediator or a conduit of sorts between the creator and the tribe. And the crow world is full of these spirits. They're in the buffalo, they're in the birds, and the moon, and the stars. And anyone who has ever owned one of those animal medicine card sets that comes in the blue box with the different animals on each card, you'll be familiar with the concept that certain animals possess certain traits. The elk spirit is strong and majestic, granting strength to the humans who honor it, while the squirrel spirit possesses the smarts needed to find food for one's family. The wolf is loyal to his pack, whereas the ant is a hard worker and the otter is playful, and so on and so on. So the individual characteristics of each creature grants special medicine to the crow as it is needed. There is no universal animal spirit for a person. 
These spirits come and go as needed when the person receives a vision from the spirit world. I hope that makes sense. The connections that these people have with the spirit world is much like the connections they have with each other. So a crow family structure is based on clans. These clans dictate the way people are expected to behave, like the ethics by which they live, and so on. Your father's clan would be called the teasing clan. If a child stepped out of line, the father's clan would quickly remind the child of how he was expected to behave. And crow people must always show modesty, and they do not brag of their own exploits, even as children. The elders instead sing the praises of their great deeds. And these elders are treated with utmost respect, with all of the females being referred to as grandmother and the male elders as grandfather. Now, as a child, you belong to your mother's clan. So let's say a young crow couple gets married. The groom would move into the village of the bride. This is called being matrilocal, as opposed to patrilocal, where she would move into his neighborhood. The Apsaluke are a matrilineal tribe, meaning they trace their ancestry through their mother's line. And actually, that's a boiled-down version of it, because the crow system of kinship is so unique that when the pioneer of American anthropology, Lewis Henry Morgan, defined the six major kinship systems, the crow fell into their own category. But hopefully, I can explain it this way. There is no word for aunt or uncle. My mother's female siblings, which would be my aunt, would be called my mother's. Her male siblings, my uncles, would be my big brothers. My aunts would be my mother's. My uncles would be my big brothers. Now, the same applies to the father's family, but it's backwards. So his brothers are my father's, and his sisters are my big sisters. Hopefully that makes sense. And there is no word for cousin. All of the children in my extended family are my brothers and sisters. I know that's hard for us to wrap our heads around, but just understand that the method by which the crow define their lineage is unique to them as a tribe. Now, remember that chief named Plenikus. When he was young, he had an older brother who he loved very much and idolized. And his brother died and Plenikou's life was shattered. So as a child of 11 years old, he had fasted and he approached the medicine rocks to seek a vision. The little people appeared to him and they led him underground, down the tunnel towards the prior mountains. For two days, they traveled among great throngs of bison, the great hairy beasts so numerous they blackened the landscape. Plenty coos could smell the musky long fur and see their long eyelashes as they thundered past him. The bison were pounding away and disappearing into a hole in the ground. And out of a different hole spewed a herd of a different type of bison, one with short hair of varying colors, some covered with spots, and they made these strange lowing sounds. These brown and black bovines began to take over the plains as the buffalo disappeared. In the vision, Plenikus then saw himself as an old man, living near the medicine rocks, the trees of the sacred forests lying flat on the ground as if filled by a great wind. A great disembodied voice told the teenager that the day of the Plains Indian was nearing its end, 
and that the white man would soon swarm over the plains. If he wanted his people to survive, he needed to hone his mind and sharpen his wits and learn to live with this inevitability. Years later, after the Mountain Crow had signed their friendship treaty with the U.S. government, Plenty Coups would become chief, and he would be instrumental in perpetuating this friendship, allowing the Crow Nation to retain most of its ancestral lands when the other tribes were losing all of theirs. Now, Plenty Coups and the chiefs before and after him welcomed the whites into their lodges and into their families and established trading relations that would stand the test of time. They were known to set up winter camp with the trappers and the traders, and they attended every rendezvous ever held. Their hunters were skilled, and their contributions to those great piles of fur that William Henry Ashley was hauling back to St. Louis were too numerous to count. They were often credited with helping injured and ailing mountain men, and they very often would travel these trap lines working right alongside the white men. Many of their young women married men of the fur companies, like Jim Beckworth. He actually had a very interesting relationship with the crow, and we'll come back to him, I promise. So, all of the mountain men were familiar with the crow tribe, and many of them were either great friends or adopted as family. In fact, it was the crow who told a young Jedediah Smith how to get through the South Pass and into the Wind River Valley when the trappers became snowbound north of the mountain range. This pass would become part of the Oregon Trail. It was the Crow, among the other tribes, who came to the aid of the mountain man at the Battle of Pierre's Hole in 1832. And in 1851, when the Treaty of Fort Laramie laid out the reservation lands, the Crow peacefully went to live on what was allotted to them. They continued to come to the white settlers' aid when the other Plains tribes were warring against what they saw as encroachers. It was the Crow who protected white settlers from raiding Sioux war parties on the treacherous Bozeman Trail, that extremely dangerous route to the Montana goldfields. And it was the Crow who joined the U.S. military in defending white settlements and escorting white caravans headed westward in the migrations of the 1860s. And sadly, it was the Crow who stood next to the American military at the ill-fated Battle of Little Bighorn, which took place on Crow Reservation lands. When Plenty Coups became chief in 1876, he fostered this friendship at every turn. In fact, the Opsaluke Nation were one of the few tribes that stood by the U.S. government unconditionally, despite the fact that Congress was whittling down their ancestral lands. Crow warriors continued to enlist as scouts in the military as the government was reducing their territories in 1868. In 1882, they were forced to cede land to the government in exchange for money to build homes, farms, and ranches on the land they had left. That same year, they stood uncomplaining as the Northern Pacific Railroad was slapped across the middle of their ancestral lands. They were awarded $25,000 in payment to be spent on their behalf at the Secretary of the Interior's office's discretion. In 1883, the first Crow children were taken from their parents and sent to the Carlisle Industrial School in Pennsylvania to be educated on how to be white. Feeling like the white government wasn't holding up their end of the bargain, by 1885, Chief Plenty Coos was fed up. Enough so that he made his first trip to Washington, D.C., armed with his sharp wit, his keen mind, 
and a list of demands for his people. He was determined to see his people survive. Then in 1887, Congress passed the Dawes Act, which is also known as the Dawes General Allotment Act. This is where the U.S. government split up tribal lands and redistributed pieces of the reservation to individual natives with the aim of forcing tribes into a white agrarian way of life. Now, I know that sounds horrible, but their intentions were good. They were trying to find a way to make the natives self-sufficient. Since farming made the whites self-sufficient, they incorrectly assumed that it would work for the natives. They believed that they had to teach them farming skills for their own good. It was short-sighted, but you know what they say about the roads to Hades. They're paved with good intentions. And while it might seem like a fair deal at first, there weren't enough congressional votes to pass it until it was amended. That amendment stated that after 160 acres of land was given to each legally registered tribe member, the rest was put up for public auction to white homesteaders. Well, nomadic plains tribes like the Crow were now forced to settle in one place and become subsistence farmers. Some couldn't deal with this agricultural existence. Some felt disconnected from the earth and others were simply swindled out of their 160 acres by some lowlife of the time. In the end, the Dawes Act saw two-thirds of the 138 million acres of all the tribes now sold to whites. In trade for giving up the lands, the natives were made official U.S. citizens. So let me paraphrase this Dawes Act for those who are still confused. Let's say you own property. I'm the government. I'm going to come take that property from you by something called eminent domain. Meaning, I don't really have to give you a good reason. I'm bigger than you are. But I do legally have to pay you fair market value for it. So I get my friend's third cousin's surveyor buddy to come appraise the land and tell me what I want to hear. Oh, I'm so sorry. This land isn't worth much at all. Now I pay you a fraction of the actual value for that land. But it's okay. I'll let you live there for free. Well, I don't actually give you the money for it. Instead, I'll buy you a new shrub to plant in your front yard. And I'll tell you where your new boundaries are. This acre is yours, and you're only allowed to grow a vegetable garden and raise one chicken. The rest of the land is going up for auction. That's the Dawes Act in a nutshell. Now, let's continue the scene to illustrate the general method by which tribal lands start disappearing. For all the tribes now, not just for the crow. Some white settler asks me, the government, for a land grant, and I need land to sell to them. So I slap a fence up on your one-acre homestead between my house that you live in and the road, cutting you off from the front yard and your garden. I can legally do this because I technically own the reservation. The new buyer moves his clunky old RV onto the property and sets it up in your garden. There's nothing you can do about it but complain. And once you submit your complaint to my office, I'll get back to you on it in a year or two or three. Later down the road, another guy looking for land asks for a grant. I need more land to sell him, so I slap a fence up between the house and the backyard. He moves his obnoxiously loud car in that backfires and spits and sputters, giving your one and only chicken a fatal heart attack. There's nothing you can do about it. File your complaint.
So to defend your sanity, you decide to erect a 10-foot wall between you and these neighbors from Hades. Well, you have to ask my permission first, in writing, fill out these forms in triplicate, and have them all notarized. Now, I say no, because it would be an eyesore to have a 10-foot wall around the house, and we can't have that. And if you decide to do it anyways, I'll kick you off my property. Hopefully that little bit of drama sums it up for you. The bottom line is that all of the tribes were at the mercy of the white government, and they were all feeling the pressures of losing their lands, being forced to conform, and feeling utterly helpless. These beautiful nomadic people couldn't deal with being pinned down. They were disheartened and displaced. They were now physically disconnected from their lands, their mountains, their ancestors, and the spirits that guide them through every aspect of their life. The social structure of the tribes begins to break down. Disease, filth, alcoholism, depression, and mental fatigue, despondency, and abject poverty become the normal way of life on many of these reservations. Unemployment ran rampant, and these new citizens, in quotes, were forced to rely on government-issued rations to survive. Anytime they fussed about their situation, the government threatened to take those rations away. It was a very dark and disgusting time in our nation's history. And some reservations are still to this day dealing with the after-effects of this even now in 2023. But still, Chief Plenty Coups fought on. A few years later, after the government threatened to cut rations if the natives didn't send their kids to white schools, the first Crow Agency boarding school was built on tribal lands. Yeah, see? You see why Plenty Coups was such a big deal. He's starting to use that sharpened wit of his. Two years later, in 1891, Congress passed yet another act forcing the cessation of two million acres from the reservation to the Secretary of the Interior. $940,000 was awarded to be spent on their behalf by the U.S. government without the Crow having any input in the spending. Well, in 1900, Plenty Coups once again heads to Washington, D.C. to demand payment for the new Burlington Railroad being slapped across the middle of the reservation and to demand equal opportunity for employment for Crow men. Well, the white politicians took his picture, shook his hand, and promised they'd take care of it. But by this time, Plenty Coos was savvy on how this was going to play out. He becomes an activist, and he starts very publicly advocating for the Crow people. So, between 1904 and 1906, Congress once again reduces the Crow Nation, this time shaving the northern section down to its current size, around 2.3 million acres which is a far cry from the almost 4 million acres they started with in 1851. No compensation was offered, but the government did give them some horses, cows, sheep, and a school. Now, by the 1920s, the Crows have got the hang of dealing with the white government. So the Crow Act was passed. That allotted the remainder of those 2.3 million acres of reservation land to every enrolled member of the tribe. It essentially stuck a name onto every acre. So now you're not messing with a bunch of faceless people. You're now messing with a person that the public can repeat his name and they can relate to. The tribal council begins to organize themselves. 
and they start to divide and conquer and multiple issues are now being addressed like schools hospitals and laws and by the 1920s plenty coups had become the very public face of the crow nation and his hard work at networking and advocacy was paying off so much so that on november 11th 1921 he was chosen by then president warren g harding to represent all of the indigenous nations at a ceremony that created a memorial to the unknown soldier in Arlington National Cemetery. Dignitaries and leaders from all over the world were there watching as the Crow Honor Guard entered and took their seats. Plenikus was the last guest to approach the sarcophagus, and he'd been specifically told not to make a speech, as President Harding would be the only one speaking on such a historic day. On his turn, he rose from his seat proud and distinguished in his full regalia, and he stood at the side of the coffin. He slowly took off his war bonnet, and he placed it on the casket, then laid his coup stick on top. The crowd was hushed with awe. Then he blew their minds with a speech. He said, I feel it an honor to the red man that he takes part in this great event, because it shows that thousands of Indians that fought in the great war are appreciated by the white man. I'm glad to represent all the Indians of the United States in placing on the grave of this noble warrior, this acoustic and war bonnet, every eagle feather of which represents a deed of valor by my race. I hope that the great spirit will grant that these noble warriors have not given up their lives in vain and that there will be peace to all men hereafter. Incidentally, that bonnet is still on display at Arlington. One of the greatest quotes I've ever heard is from this man. He says, education is your most powerful weapon. With education, you are the white man's equal. Without education, you are his victim, and so shall remain all your lives. In 1932, Plenty Coups died. I wonder if he was at peace with his journey, seeing all the things that he had accomplished. Within six years of his passing, there were 11 public schools, four Catholic schools, and one Protestant school operating on reservation property. I think he'd have been proud. Despite all the times the white government reneged on their agreements, all the time their lands were stolen, all the money that was given to them that they never actually got to spend, Despite all of this, when the call was put out for young men to fight in World War I, the Crow men answered that call. In fact, over all of the tribes, 12,000 natives enlisted. Then came 1934, and the U.S. Congress aimed their sights on decreasing the federal control that it held over American Indian affairs. Their goal was to have the tribes become self-governing and responsible for their own business. They wanted to take a more hands-off approach with the natives. So back in the 1900s, the federal census showed there was just over 200,000 American Indians living in the U.S., most on reservations that were government-controlled. And when I say controlled, I do mean controlled. The natives were no better than tenants who lived next door to that overbearing, nosy landlord, constantly peeking in their windows and reading their mail and telling them every day what they could and could not do with their rented space. 
that's what many of these tribes were up against. So in gratitude for the natives who fought in World War I, Congress had authorized the Miriam Survey back in 1924. This survey was to make a determination of what life was really like on the reservations. And it's at this point that the government realized just how damaging the Dawes Act had been. Everyone was appalled at the shocking condition these natives had been living in. And for the most part, the Miriam Report was a great thing. It recommended that the government stop stealing acreage from the natives and return the surplus lands to the tribes rather than sell it to white homesteaders. It encouraged the tribes to write their own constitutions and charters and to organize their own tribal governing bodies. And it recommended the establishment of a government revolving credit program to help the tribes get themselves back to the point of being financially stable. Once it was implemented, many tribes did improve their situations, both economically and physically. Millions of acres were added to reservations for many of the tribes. The health and the education of the elders and the children began to improve exponentially. And the tribes started getting to the point where they were defining their own future. But some of the tribes rejected this attempt to reorganize. The Navajo were one of those nations that told the government where they could put their reorganizational plans. They had no reason to trust the Bureau of Indian Affairs, who had up to this point lied and stolen their way through the majority of Navajo lands. Heck, the Bureau had only recently told the Navajo Nation it had to kill most of its sheep and goats to stop soil erosion on the reservation, which was complete bunk. And while the Miriam Report did make efforts to get the white government out of the business of the natives, the damage had pretty much already been done. So many tribes did reject this government interference, and the Crow were one of those tribes. They basically said, to heck with it, we don't need you white folks, and they organized themselves. And they did phenomenally well. They adopted their own tribal constitution, they sold their own excess lands for two and a half million dollars, and funded their own way of life. Then, in 1962, they sued the U.S. government for all those contract breaches over the past century, and after paying their attorneys and their other court costs, the tribe received a net award just over $10 million. In fact, they sued them again in 1987 for breach of trust and dereliction of duties over that 1920 Crow Act, winning millions more. One cool fact I discovered during my research was that in 2008, then U.S. Senator Barack Obama was adopted into the Crow tribe, and that later, when he was elected president, Tribal representatives were in the inaugural parade. Okay, I promise to bring up Jim Beckworth. Please keep in mind that Jim Beckworth is well known for his tall tales and his embellished stories. He's known as a liar. So, Jim was a trapper for the Rocky Mountain Fur Company starting in 1824, and he was half white and half black, but his skin tone was decidedly black. Supposedly, a fellow trapper named Caleb Greenwood is sitting at the 1825 rendezvous, and he tells this story about how Jim was not actually black, but instead he was the son of a crow chief who had been kidnapped as an infant. Of course, we know this isn't true, but the mountain men around the fire start believing it. Then Jim disappears for a few years, 
When he reappears, he claims to have been captured by the crow while out trapping one day, and says he was mistaken for the long-lost son of a crow chief. He claims to have lived as a full member of the tribe for eight or nine years, even marrying a chief's daughter, and rising through the society from warrior to chief. According to Beckworth's own words, he ascended all the way to the highest-ranking war chief position. Now, he continued to trap, but he sold his furs to the American Fur Company instead of his own employer. Beckworth is supposed to have returned to St. Louis when the American Fur Company refused to renew his contract in 1837. He gathered stacks of blankets and trade goods, and he returned to the Crow people to trade. It's said that those blankets were infected with the smallpox virus, and that Jim had unwittingly began a virulent epidemic within the tribe. This last fact is very likely true, because one of the Crow later complained to Jim Bridger, who we know is a stand-up guy, about the white man being responsible for bringing the scourge of smallpox down on the Crow Nation, citing that Beckworth was the cause. So let's take a quick look at how and why the Crow survived and prospered when other tribes were floundering. First of all, these people had the patience of Job and severely thick skin. They withstood one slight after another, always maintaining poise and the moral high ground. They didn't rebel when they were on the receiving end of grief. And they didn't fuss or fight when they were thrown over a barrel. They simply nodded and went about their business. Secondly, when they did get pushed to the point of being fed up, plenty coups approached the government with respect. When you give respect, you get it in return. So they treated him with a whole lot less animosity than they were treating the other tribes. And thirdly, they were flexible. When the whites required something, they would do their best to meet that demand, albeit with their own style and flair. Uh, the whites threatened to take their children to send them to a reconditioning school thousands of miles away. So they built their own school and taught the kids on site. The whites required them to be farmers. They adapted that demand to something that suits them. The government wants the lands to be sold to the homesteaders. They sold it themselves and pocketed the money. You have to admit, these people were absolutely brilliant when it comes to adaptability. And to show you just how adaptable these people were, let me introduce you to Dr. Joseph Medicine Crow. He was considered by many to be the last Crow war chief, and he fought in World War II. So understand, in the traditional Crow culture, if a warrior could accomplish four major feats of cunning and strength on the battlefield, he was worthy of becoming a war chief. It's what we sometimes call counting coup. You had to A, lead a successful war party against your enemy, B, touch the enemy in combat without killing him, C, take the enemy's horse, and D, disarm the enemy without taking his life. Keep in mind, this is World War II. Not too many Germans are riding through Paris on horseback. Yet, during World War II, Chief Joe Medicine Crow somehow managed to accomplish all four of these trials, proving that he was worthy of such an ancient and honored position in this modern world. Now, throughout the ages, the Crow Nation have held themselves to a higher standard, particularly when it came to dealing with the white government. The whites wanted the Crow to be like the whites, act like the whites, live like the whites. These amazing people somehow managed to meld these two worlds together. 
so that they were in compliance with the government demands while still maintaining their unique cultural identity. Today, the nation of the Absoluke have around 12,000 enrolled members. The Crow Reservation today is established south of Billings, Montana, and the tribal headquarters are located at Crow Agency, Montana. The tribe also operates the Little Bighorn College. This amazing nation of people who once befriended the trappers and traders, who once contributed to the North American fur trade, who protected the white settlers and once fought side by side with the soldiers to protect this nation, deserve our respect. We can't give the lands back to the natives without displacing the whites who currently live on it. We can't bring back the hundreds of thousands of lives lost to white diseases or armed conflicts or bring back the tens of millions of buffaloes we killed. People cannot undo history. We can pay for some things and make reparations. We can certainly learn from mistakes made and approach things differently with a little more understanding and respect. One of the, the biggest mistakes we've made throughout history is trying to force others to conform. We no longer do that to the natives. Tribal councils control their own business within much looser boundaries of the federal government. The tribes are creating their own futures without interference. Another mistake we've already corrected is how we see natives. Where images of natives used to strike fear into the hearts of settlers, we now look at them in admiration and awe. Where natives were once seen as barbarians and heathens, they're now seen as reverent and respectful. Yet another historical mistake was the use of stereotypes. Anyone who watches old westerns will probably know what I'm talking about. It's hard for me to not roll my eyes at how the natives were portrayed with their how and kimosabi. But now, Native American actors and actresses are representing their own people, speaking their own language. And we also now see each tribe for their unique qualities, recognizing differences in their regalia and their ways of life. Like Plenty Coos said, education is your most powerful weapon. Learning about Crow culture will give you an appreciation for how magnificent these people are, at how this tribe has survived and thrived through its tumultuous past. I hope through this podcast you've gained an appreciation for how this indigenous people shaped the fur trade, and I hope you gained a little bit of knowledge and respect for the Opsaluke in particular, because they are an incredible nation and they deserve our respect. So that's it for today's episode, everyone. Please look to the website for links and resources. You can continue your own education. Uh, Fursandfrontiers.com. Have a great weekend, everybody. Keep your powder dry.